to Innocence Advocate Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode three, Becoming a Suspect. Last week, I shared with you the details of the crime and the initial investigation that took place between May 13th and May 15th, 1996. If you haven't heard that episode yet, make sure you go back and listen to what the neighbors had to say about the night of the murder and the lack of evidence collected that could actually point to a perpetrator. This week, I wanted to focus on what led to Stephen becoming the prime suspect throughout this five and a half year investigation. While the crime scene investigations were taking place before any piece of evidence was even analyzed, Sergeant Doyle, Detective Mercer, and Detective Legaza had already set their sights on Stephen, labeling him their prime suspect. In fact, all three would testify that Stephen was their one and only suspect from early on in the investigation. Detective Legaza even stating Stephen's status was established almost immediately. At 10 o'clock a.m. on Tuesday, May 14, 1996, while detectives and forensic scientists searched the neighborhood before the discovery of Kristen's body, Detective Legaza and Sergeant Doyle were inside 45 Cedar Road talking to my grandparents. They were inquiring as to where they were the night of May 12th and whether they had witnessed any noise or commotion, to which they both answered that they had not. Early on in their conversation, the detectives became aware that Stephen also lived in the house. Detective Legaza testified that he asked my grandmother to call Stephen downstairs, and she responded that it would be a hard interview because he didn't get along with people too well. At this point in time, Stephen had received his diagnosis of a personality disorder from 1982, but he hadn't yet received the schizophrenic diagnosis. So this comment would have been my grandmother's way of trying to explain that Stephen didn't really talk to strangers and in all honesty, without a diagnosis, or even if he had one, how do you explain his reclusion and mental illness to the police? But my grandma did what they asked, and she called Stephen down. The detective testified that when Stephen became aware of them standing in the foyer, he ran upstairs to his bedroom and slammed the door. The detectives followed my grandmother upstairs and reported that they knocked on Stephen's bedroom door several times with no answer. So they opened the door themselves and reported that he was standing, looking out the window, he was wearing dark trousers, a white type dress shirt. He had no shoes on and his hair was wet. This part of the transcript was hard for me to read. This isn't the images we see in the movies where people are running away from the police. They're jumping out of windows trying to escape. This is the image of a grown man struggling mentally, getting away from strangers and going to hide in his safe space, going to his room so he can look out of the window, which is what he did day upon day, year upon year. During Detective Legaza's direct examination by the prosecutor, he described the initial meeting and conversation with Stephen, which was then corroborated by Sergeant Doyle. Detective Legaza stated that at this point, they introduced themselves and told Stephen that they were there investigating the disappearance and possible assault of his neighbor, Kristen Scarabelli, who lived next door. We told him that this incident had happened on Kristen's front lawn, which is right next door to his driveway. And he said that he didn't know who that was. So the police said, it's the 16-year-old girl that lives next door to you your whole life. And Stephen apparently said this happened Sunday evening. I wasn't even here Sunday. So they asked him where he was. And he said he went to California on Saturday and that he got back on Monday. And they asked him what he was doing in California. He said that he went there on business. When asked what type of business, he said, that's confidential. The detective testified that my grandmother, Stephen's mother, was standing in the foyer at this time. So they called down to her and they said, you said he was home Sunday evening. He's telling us he was in California. And she said something to the effect of Stephen, stop that and tell the police the truth. The detectives turned their attention back to Stephen and asked why he told them he was in California. And he said, I didn't want you to talk to me about this. 
And when asked if he knew anything about what happened, if he had heard anything or seen anything, he said, I didn't hear or see anything. When asked if he was in the room when his parents went to bed, he responded that he didn't remember. He was asked several times if he saw or heard anything, and he replied, no, no, he hadn't every time. They finally asked him, could Kristen be in your house? And he said, she's not in here. And they asked, do you have any idea where she might be? And he said, not around here. And that he continued to elaborate that he didn't go out. Often he just stayed in his room. He didn't see anything. In the psychological evaluation by Dr. Berger for the prosecution, he uses this initial conversation as the basis for many of his findings. However, Dr. Berger doesn't elaborate on the details. The way in which he presents this information in his report makes it seem as though this line of questioning took place in a police station or sitting on a couch in the family living room, and that it's happening with someone who hasn't been struggling with an undiagnosed and unmedicated mental illness for years. The police presence in Stephen's room must have been extremely uncomfortable for him. At this point in time, 1996, he'd been a recluse for over 13 years. He barely left his room. He went outside only sparingly, and he didn't associate with others while he was out there. And hardly anyone went into Stephen's room. My grandparents only went in on rare occasions. My father and my uncle John, they only went in on need-to-do basis, like looking in his closet to see if he needed any clothes or anything like that. And it was done sparingly. Now here Stephen is in a situation that would make anyone anxious. There's canine dogs roaming his house and he's going through police questioning. With the police downstairs, Stephen did what I would expect, what he did when anyone other than those closest to him were present. He went to his room. So whenever we were visiting when we were kids and someone came to the house, this could be a neighbor, a friend of my grandparents, or even other family members, Stephen would always hide in his room until they were gone. I'm pretty sure... Most people knew because they weren't asking where he is or anything like that. So they either knew that he was hiding from them or they didn't even know that he lived there. When the detective described Stephen standing in his room looking out the window, my heart ached for him. I imagined him folding into himself, his shoulders slumped, just staring blankly. At that moment in time, he was being forced into two situations he hadn't experienced in many years. One, he was around strangers. And two, they were in a safe place. But he lied about being in California. Was that the struggling reaction from someone who needed to remove these strange men from his sanctuary? Maybe he thought, if I say I wasn't here, then they'll just leave my home. They'll leave me alone. Maybe he wasn't thinking at all. Perhaps his mental illness was inhibiting him from adequately processing the situation. Nevertheless, he lied. And he would continue in later questioning to apparently tell the police he was in California. But despite that, he had a solid alibi, which was more than any other person of interest had. The detectives in this case never actually state a specific reason for making Stephen their prime suspect from the onset of the investigation. They clearly possessed some confusion based on their first interaction with him. But again, at that time, no evidence had been analyzed. And the canine search of Stephen's home yielded no findings associated with Kristen. The police asked if canines could enter the home. My grandparents agreed immediately but they didn't find anything. Now, I don't know if much has changed in this regard, but it would seem like police who have to interact with a variety of people on a daily basis would have some level of training in dealing with the mentally ill. But that wasn't really the case with the detectives in this investigation. And their hypocrisy regarding mental illness would be demonstrated later on in the case. So what else could have been taking place to make them strongly believe Stephen was worth investigating further? 
The only answers I could come up with were that the detectives had to find someone and there were reports from Kristen's friends detailing what they believed to be strange behavior by Stephen. Now, remember that when we talk about Kristen's friends, these are young girls. They're dealing with a chaotic and emotional experience. Much of what they had to say was assumption about Stephen, and a lot of it couldn't be proven. The prosecutor really used Kristen's friends to make Stephen look bad, even though they had never spent time with him, so they didn't actually know anything about him. The prosecutor tried to keep the focus of Mara's testimony, Kristen's best friend, on her perception of Stephen. And she told the jury damaging things about Stephen, though nothing was proven beyond her word or even an indication of the crime itself. So although she's painting a negative picture of him, it still doesn't have anything to do with the crime. Mara testified that she became acquainted with Stephen early on in her relationship with Kristen as she saw Stephen every time she was at Kristen's house, which was almost on a daily basis. However, when asked where she would witness Stephen, she stated that he would be up in his window, staring out, watching the neighborhood. She went on to testify that he would be watching them as they walked from house to house or from their cars into Kristen's house. And she also testified that in addition to seeing Stephen in his window upstairs, he was observed outside by his bushes, just staring. And her impression was that he was watching whoever was walking by. Through her testimony, Mara established that Kristen had never engaged in conversation with Stephen at any time. And when asked if she herself or any of their other friends had conversed with him, she stated that they never conversed with him, but there were times where they had said things to him that they had cursed up towards his window, that they may have made a reference to why are you staring at us, things like that. And that Kristen was very quick to stop and tell them just stop. Now, she continued to testify that Kristen was scared of Stephen, so she kept an ice pick, hammer, and screwdriver in her room. However, later testimony from Kristen's mother would state that she had been in her daughter's room several times and never witnessed those items. But this is an example of damaging information that was allowed in the trial, though it's just hearsay and it wasn't corroborated by anyone else, not even Kristen's mother. Mara also stated that she had witnessed Stephen running across the Scarabelli's backyard once and Kristen's brother Eugene didn't seem worried about it. In fact, Mara said that at all the time she had been to Kristen's house, that was the only time she ever saw Stephen on their property. During Mara's cross-examination by Stephen's lawyer, she testified that, again, she had seen Stephen in his window behind his bushes and at no time did Stephen ever talk to her or anyone with her. In fact, she testified that she often flipped Stephen off and on other occasions she had said, fuck you, you're crazy. At no point did Stephen ever respond or retaliate. She said he would only shut his blinds when this happened. He never spoke back. He never flipped her off in return. Mr. Soshnik, Stephen's lawyer, asked a line of questions to establish the fact that he was simply on his property looking out of his window and she would behave this way. And he would just ignore her or not just her, whoever else was doing it as well, but not Kristen. She never spoke to Stephen in any way, especially not with derogatory words. Mara said that Kristen was disapproving of them cursing at Stephen, calling him crazy and taunting him. The last series of questions from Stephen's lawyer to Mara are paramount in their importance. Mara testified that if Stephen had gone to any doors of the Scarabelli home and Kristen was alone, she would have absolutely not opened the door for him. Her testimony in that moment further emphasized the unlikeliness of Kristen associating with Stephen on any level on the night of May 12, 1996. 
Throughout the investigation, and even to this day, the question of whether or not Kristen opened the door for someone or if she met someone outside still remains unknown. But with that, all the testimonies make it clear that Kristen would not have opened the door for Stephen or be meeting him outside. Another of Kristen's close friends, Kara, also testified to similar occurrences as described by Mara. She said that Stephen was always looking out of his window watching people and that she had only witnessed him on the Scarability property one time and that that was two years before Kristen's death. To this day, I hate when people look out the window. I tell my dad and I tell my husband all the time, if someone's outside, don't look out the window. It makes me feel so uncomfortable. And I can say without a doubt that my extreme anxiety over this is directly correlated to the fact that Stephen was painted in such a negative way because he was always looking out of his window. He was assumed by the media and other people to be a stalker, a creep, a scary person. I heard all about this behavior in the news, which suggested his behavior was disturbing. New York Post articles continue to refer to him as an oddball and a peeping Tom. But the truth is, anybody can look out of their window anytime they want and as much as they want. Likewise, there's equally nothing wrong with someone standing on their property or sitting on their property observing others. I drive through my neighborhood all the time and people are sitting on their porches just kind of looking out. Maybe they wave, maybe they don't, but it's a very normal behavior. And it doesn't matter what the person looks like either. Stephen didn't talk to people. He barely left the proximity of his front door. Looking out of his window was all he had. He wasn't speaking. He was just quietly observing day upon day, year upon year. That is what he was capable of doing. And staring at the world from his safe place was all that he could manage with his illness. It's not shameful to look out the window. I have to remind myself of this. And the mere act of staring is not a crime. The questioning in this case leads people to believe that it's only acceptable to stare and watch other people if you are typical in your appearance or unassuming in your demeanor. But the way that Kristen's friends portrayed Stephen, it actually reminded me of an example that Stephen's lawyer offered during his closing arguments in 2003. And this is what he said to the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, when I walk into the federal courthouse in Manhattan, I always look for that big statue of Lady Justice. And there's something on her face. Maybe you've seen that statue on TV or in movies or on flyers. That statue is of a woman who is holding scales of justice and there's something on her face. You know what it is? It's a blindfold. Do you know why it's there? Because we're not supposed to judge people based upon what they look like. That's the wrong way to reach a fair and objective open-minded verdict. The problem with the investigation and in this case overall is that Stephen was judged this way. This judgment was possessed by Kristen's friends, her family, the police, and the prosecutor. Now, I can't deny that I understand some of their thinking. If I had a neighbor who behaved strangely, perhaps I would create assumptions about them, or maybe I would even behave differently toward them, but I would not condemn them to a life in prison based on that alone. Kristen's friends were not the only ones who were questioned about Stephen and their perception of Stephen. During Mrs. Scarabelli's testimony, she was also asked questions about her relationship with our family and Stephen in particular. She said that our families had been neighbors for over 20 years and that during all of those years, they had not had any incidents with my family or Stephen before or after Kristen's death. She testified that she had not witnessed Stephen on her property prior to Kristen's death, but after her death, she had observed him maybe three times. She never spoke to him. She never called the police. 
So you've heard what others thought about Stephen, which may have resulted in him being looked at by the police. And we also have that first encounter he had with the police in which he said he was in California. But he actually had an alibi from my grandparents. And in my opinion, they were very detailed and clear as to how they knew he was there with them at the time of the murder. In a five-page handwritten letter from my grandmother, she and my grandfather provide Stephen's alibi for the night of the murder. This is the same information that would later be testified to in court. It was hard to read at times these letters as I was working on the story. They're in my grandmother's handwriting, and I could just picture my grandparents sitting at the table together, putting this information together, pouring their heart and soul into the details. Because of my grandfather's Parkinson's, he would dictate to my grandmother what he wanted her to write for him. This is what he had to say. My name is John Manolis. Stephen Manolis is my son. My family and I remember Sunday, May 12, 1996 very well. In order to understand this, a little background may be in order. In April 1996, Stephen's grandmother was hospitalized for a mini stroke. These mini strokes continued until medication put the situation under control. By this time, she was 93 years old. Stephen was looking forward to having his grandmother on Mother's Day that year. He was distressed that it could not happen because of another mini stroke. Early Sunday morning before we left for church, we told Stephen to call us if anything new developed. While we were at church, he reached out to us and told us that he had not received any call from his aunt with whom his grandmother was living. We then came home and remained with Stephen all day, waiting for news of his grandmother. Stephen remained mostly in his room reading and from time to time would come downstairs and ask if we had heard anything yet. A few minutes before 7 p.m., Stephen came downstairs and asked us what we were watching on TV. We told him that we were waiting for 60 minutes to start. He said the program would probably be a repeat, so we went to the kitchen and ate his dinner. At 8 o'clock, he came into the den and we gave him the TV remote. From then on, we watched as he searched his favorite channels, Discovery, History, TLC, and Sci-Fi. Mostly, he would watch Home Shopping Channel whenever coins were shown for sale. At 11 p.m., his mother went up to her bedroom. Stephen followed her up the stairs as it was his custom every day since his mother, whose arthritic knees would often give way. On one occasion, she fell down the stairs backwards, striking her head. He immediately came back down and continued to watch TV until 11.30 p.m. When Stephen and I went up at 11.30 to our bedrooms, my bedroom door is situated directly at the top of the stairs, and it's kept open in the event we need to call out to Stephen for assistance. I sat up in bed listening to the radio softly while waiting for a program I wanted to hear at 1 a.m. Stephen never left his bedroom. Because of my grandfather's Parkinson's and his failing eyesight, he listened to the radio instead of reading, and one of his favorite shows was Art Bell and George Norrie's Coast to Coast, which aired from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. My grandparents continued that letter with what happened the following morning. The next morning, the doorbell rang. My wife and I came to the door and Charlene Scarabelli was at the door. She asked if Marie saw or heard anything the night before as her daughter was missing. Marie said perhaps she's at her friend's house or with a boyfriend. She said that she had called her friends and that she had no boyfriends. Marie said she had heard nothing and was about to explain that the family was watching TV that evening in the den, which is in the back of the house. When Charlene hurriedly said, I have to go, the police are here and we saw a police car drive up to the curb in front of her house. In this very detailed and specific letter, my grandparents make it clear that Stephen was with them at the time the murder took place. In later testimony, my grandparents were able to give more specifics as to their nightly routine and why they were certain of the times they went to bed. At the time of the trial, my grandfather had already been suffering from Parkinson's disease for 14 years. For those years, he had been taking the same medication every day. 
Because of his poor eyesight, my grandmother would actually administer his medication for him every two hours from 8 a.m. to midnight. And I watched them do this my entire childhood. Not only were they sure that Stephen was watching television until 11.30 p.m., but they were also certain that my grandmother was still awake at midnight in order to give my grandfather his last dose of medication before bed. This had been their routine for at least 14 years. And although Stephen had an alibi, he was still considered the prime suspect. Cameras showed up in the Scarabelli windows shortly after Kristen's death. One camera faced the same room where I slept with my sister. Stephen, who usually made sure that we had a nice breeze coming through the window, instantly began checking our curtains every time we visited. He did talk to us about the cameras. He showed them to us and wanted to make sure that we weren't leaving the curtains open. I remember him painfully lifting me up so I could see out of the window as he pointed to the camera. He was concerned that they would be watching myself and my sister or that we might be changing and the curtains would be open. And I was grateful that he told us about them, but once I knew, paranoia set in. At the time, I didn't fully understand why those cameras appeared, and I wondered why nobody ever did anything about it. After Stephen's arrest, it became clear that those cameras had been in place to send the message. I'm not sure if those cameras were actually on, but nothing was ever reported by the Scarabellis or the police concerning camera footage. Those cameras would remain in place for at least five years. I imagine the intention was to catch Stephen in a condemning act or to scare him into thinking that he was being watched. Stephen was being watched. From 1996 to 2001, Stephen was surveyed by detectives on numerous occasions. They never reported catching Stephen in any accusing acts in those five years. So what do we have so far in this case against Stephen? There is no sign of Kristen anywhere in his home, either visually or after the canine search. There are no physical wounds on Stephen suggesting any type of physical altercation. There is nothing outside that indicated Stephen participated in the crime. There was no person saying that he did it. There's no eyewitness. All we have is his reclusive behavior described by others, and we have the lie that Stephen gave about being in California. It's important to remember, too, that Stephen said this lie in 1996, the day after the crime. But the police did not speak to him again at all for five and a half years until the night of his arrest. So nobody in my family even knew that he was the prime suspect for all those years. Stephen had a tight alibi. He was with my grandparents in one way or another until 11.30 p.m., which is 30 minutes past when the crime occurred, when neighbors heard screams. My grandmother is awake until midnight. And my grandfather is still up listening to his radio after 1 a.m. He said that Stephen never left his room. And he said that he knew that because, one, he was awake, but also because they leave their door open in case they need to call out to Stephen for help. So for Stephen to go outside, he would have had to walk past their open bedroom door and down the stairs. But again, he's got someone saying they know he's at home, in the home, until at least 1 a.m. And to clarify, my grandfather's Parkinson's affected his eyesight, not his hearing. I'm not convinced that at this stage in the investigation, they really had enough to label Stephen their one and only suspect. They may have had questions about him. They may have had hesitation based on his lie. But none of that is enough to say he's the one. He's guilty of this crime. But even still, he was arrested in 2001, five and a half years after the crime. The details surrounding Stephen's arrest are suspicious and violent. Tune in next week to hear how his arrest took place and why the detectives had to resort to trickery to actually arrest him. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.